I'm Margot Neal. I'm Siobhan McHugh. And this is Heart of Artness. A journey into the cross-cultural stories that animate the Aboriginal art world. So, Margot, until I got involved with this project, for me, humbug was a word I'd only really come across in Charles Dickens. Bah, humbug, you know, about Scrooge hating Christmas time. But in an Aboriginal community, it has a completely different meaning. What does humbug mean in an Indigenous community? Well, it varies, of course, from community to community, but there seems to be a general consensus that it means it seems to come mostly around money or things that money can buy, cars or, you know, things that are needed. And the thing is that the Aboriginal... And again, I don't want to generalise, but uh, in my experience, an Aboriginal sense of uh, money is different from the um, imperatives that are driving the dealers, good and bad. Where there's money, there's a need for it. Where there's a capacity to make more money, there's a greater need for it. And then therefore there's greater pressure. So it's just almost a... I was going to say almost a human thing um, when there's lots of money, it obviously cultivates a propensity for greed, whatever that means to different people. But in the Indigenous community, of course, money is a currency, of course, but Aboriginal sense of money is not, uh, it's not a materialistic one. It's, they don't have an acquisitive uh, sense. They don't run bank accounts and save for later or put a deposit on a house. They don't have any of those imperatives. Money is something that comes in and goes out, comes in and goes out. It just sort of oils the wheels of life on a daily basis. So um, they kind of need it now, not in six months' time. So if they do a work, they need the money now. But businesses don't tend to run like that. So in that intervening period, there will be humbug for money so, and there's also, I've found, now I'm talking about remote communities here, particularly, you know, yeah, definitely yeah. remote communities. My experience is that there's no sense of shame around money. So you can humbug somebody daily without feeling embarrassed that you're humbugging about money. It's a very Western thing to feel embarrassed about asking somebody for money. So how did it work with somebody who is really successful, like, say, Emily? Mm. Emily... How do you say her name? Emily. Yeah, who is obviously the most successful female Aboriginal painter ever in Australia. And you were closely involved with her and, and uh, you know, curated exhibitions of hers in Japan and done her biography, really, haven't you? Mm. Um, so how did it work for her when she got so famous as an old woman in the middle of the desert out there in Utopia in her community? Well, you know, I think it actually wreaked havoc because... The money would come in, and sometimes large amounts, and a lot of times it trickle in, and then there's none. But the large amounts would come in, basically um, pass through her, if you like, to the families and relatives, and which is just about everyone else in the communities. I mean, Utopia's got sixteen little communities, but they're all kind of related one way or another. And the difficulty is, you know. It seems she had some particular people she particularly gave lots to. And at the end of the day, almost all of the young men under 40 had 
health issues related to alcohol. It didn't go to a place to build a community hall or something because to do that would involve white management because that's what white people do. But that's not what they do because it's this, it's, there must be a word, there's this flowing effect. So, it, well, on one hand, we're saying, um, isn't it amazing? She's so successful. Uh, we measure her success in dollars. Her, she was the first Australian female artist, black or white, who broke the one million dollar barrier for for a work. Um, and then we talk about the three or four million or whatever it passed through her hands, but it has no ultimate positive effect except during the time she was passing money on. Was it in a way, in a sense, fueling damage because if it was being, if if people were drinking with it and getting sick? Well, yeah, it, it, from a white perspective, and you hear many speak of it, it looked like, yeah, it was causing destruction in the community, but at the same time, you can't tell blackfellas what to do with their money. So it's a very complex situation. Yeah, that's a, such a strange name to Utopia. Uh, yeah. where, did, where did that come from? Actually, Utopia, yes, it's... I have to... You know, whilst one doesn't want to cast aspersions certainly not on the communities that live there, but it is obviously a white fella's name, Utopia, you know, and given the damage it was caused through lots of money going there in this way, that it was a more like dystopia, um, there's a big humbug and a lot of problems going on there. But it came because in the early days when it was so-called discovered by some... Um, adventurers, pastoralists um, who came from down south with cattle to set up a pastoral station which ultimately became Delmore Downs. When they arrived there after a long and hot and dusty trip from down south they saw wildlife and rabbits running everywhere and they had a field day so and they called This is Utopia. OK, let's listen to the episode and it's called Well, we're going to be meeting more of the Matrix. And before we start, a note that this podcast may contain the voices and names of Aboriginal people who have died. At the Telstra Art Awards in Darwin, you can tell the wealthy collectors from Sydney and Melbourne, they just look too well-heeled among the people who actually live and work in remote and regional communities. Richard Bell, the Brisbane artist, actually calls them bints, been in the Northern Territory. But that's another story. We'll come back to him later. Here at Des Art, the annual desert gathering in Alice Springs, it's a free-for-all. Nothing costs over $500, and people queue at the gates to get in. But it's about more than finding a bargain. I often say to clients, buying Aboriginal art is an addiction. You buy your first piece, and it will be your first piece of many, because there is something about the art... That, that penetrates your soul. Judy Muller is another one of those interesting, engaged people who orbit around the Indigenous art world. Petite and energetic and clearly on a mission, she kind of fell into selling Aboriginal art. I retired 13 years ago after 30-plus years in the public service. Um, I thought when I finished work at 57, oh my God, my mother was still alive. She didn't pass away until she was 97. And I thought, 40 years, what am I going to do? I'd always had an interest in art and I'd had a long-standing interest in Aboriginal art, but never thought about getting involved in it. 
So to occupy my time, I started doing short courses offered through Continuing Ed, Sydney University, WEA, anything I could find. I read a lot, I Googled a lot. And um, one day in Glebe, I noticed a new Aboriginal art gallery had opened. I went in, got chatting to the owner. She was impressed with my knowledge and passion and offered me a job basically on the spot. So I worked there for two and a half, almost three years. She then closed the gallery for a variety of reasons, primarily health, and at the time said, you can't leave this industry, you're good at it, you're passionate about it. So we talked about what I might or might not want to do and I was very clear that I didn't want a gallery, I didn't want all the expense and I guess the, the overall sort of responsibility of managing a gallery. Um, so I decided I would sell from home. Um, because of my time at her gallery I had all the contacts with lots of art centres so I contacted them and they knew me, they willingly sent me a whole pile of work on consignment, initially 30 by 30s and I set up at the Lilyfield Market selling 30 by 30s. I then started getting requests for larger paintings. So the business kind of grew from there. Dealers in Aboriginal art range from evangelical, like Judy Muller, and Dallas Gold of Raft Gallery, the guy we met last episode, to long-established and very different commercial outlets like the Rosalind Oxley and Cooey Galleries in Sydney. Then there are the downright shonky, We've put a link on our website to an investigation by the ABC's Indigenous unit into some of the rip-off merchants, if that's your interest. At its worst in the 80s, when Aboriginal art took off, carpetbaggers would turn up in remote communities, distribute canvas and paint, and make off with the artworks, paying a pittance to the artists. But regulation gradually improved, and now there's a body called the Indigenous Art Code that protects artists and investigates fraud. It's still a slippery area to negotiate, as Judy has discovered. 99% of the work that I sell has been sourced from Aboriginal-owned art centres. So there is an assumption there that they are well looked after and they, they get their share of the monies. And certainly that happens. But um, art centres are managed by human beings. There are some human beings that are better than other human beings. The point I'm making here is that simply because work comes from an Aboriginal-owned art centre, sure, it's ethical, but you can't necessarily be 100% assured that the artist has been treated well. Then the other side of the coin are private dealers. There are, in fact, some private dealers who are, have high integrity, operate exceptionally ethical um, studios, pay artists as well as the art centres do, support the artists in a similar sort of way, provide them with food during the day the way the art centres do, um, pay them appropriately, pay them on time, pay them a commission, pay them ro resale royalties, all of those sorts of things, as art centres do. The issue is finding them. Some places I've walked in and I've turned around and walked out because you can, you can smell the fact that it's dodgy. And the issue for me is people from communities come to Alice Springs for a variety of reasons and when they're in Alice Springs they need money and the only way that these people, and people is usually women with families, can earn money is to paint for a dealer. 
So I think it's illogical for the purists to say only art centre, because what happens to the women who come to town and need money? They paint for private dealers. And what about people that, who approach you in the mall, say at Todd Street Mall, offering you a painting? Have you got a, you know, is that okay to buy from them? My view about that is you don't barter. They set a price and you pay the price. They've spent time, they've put their heart and soul and, 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 and spirit into the artwork. And if they believe that their work is worth $300, then I will pay $300. And I won't say to them, will you take 250 If I don't want to pay $300, I'll say no thank you. So I just bought some work this week from an independent artist who lives in Alice Springs. She brought the work to me. Um, I wanted both pieces. I asked her how much and she umdenard because dealing with Whitefeller about money is not always easy. Um, so I said to her, look, I've got a job to do for 10 minutes. I'll be back in 10 minutes. You think about what, how much you want. And that gave her enough time. And I came back and said, what do you want for the paintings? Have you decided? And she said, uh, yeah, 200 each. And I went, done. Money is a vexed issue in Aboriginal art. At one level, it's subject to the usual ups and downs of any art as investment. If the rules change on tax relief, that flows through. But for Indigenous art, political atmospherics have an impact. Such as when the Howard government introduced what became known as the Intervention in 2007. This was a response to an exhaustive study into child abuse, violence and other issues in remote communities. The Indigenous-led study made numerous recommendations, but the government cherry-picked which ones to adopt. The result was a heavy-handed policing of remote communities. It is interventionist. It does push aside the role of the, of the territory to some degree. I accept that, but what matters more? The constitutional niceties or the care and protection of young children. That was former Prime Minister John Howard discussing the intervention. Some Aboriginal leaders saw it as an excuse for the government to wind back hard-won autonomy, effectively a land grab. Others felt the end justified the means. But the media spotlight on tales of dysfunctional communities had repercussions among liberal-minded art collectors. All the bad press. The media really wanted to jump on every ne negative news story about Indigenous people, so I think collectors who thought that they were making some sort of difference on the ground, sudden, you know, realise that, oh, is our money making any difference? You know, is, is it just... I think the gloss seemed to go off for a lot of potential buyers. Even when the money is coming in for the artists, it can be problematic. Remember that concept humbug Margot and I talked about? That noble commitment to share with kin can get skewed by outside market forces. Raft gallery owner Dallas Gold has seen the good and the bad side of what success can bring. Making someone famous financially with money has been really detrimental in a sense it's just created a lot of humbug from family because there's a lot of people that, within the family, within communities that have no, no means of earning a living and no avenue of opportunity so they'll exploit the resource that's there in front of them and Sometimes that's not a very nice thing to do and it can destroy an artist. So it's worked both ways. It's 
I've seen people get incredibly proud and through the gallery, through their art, have gotten voice and that's been really good. And other times the money side of it has destroyed some people, it's corrupted people. So it's a two-edged sword. Judy isn't too worried about the impact of celebrity. She's trying to help the other artists make a buck. And for her, it's both political and personal. I want to promote unknown artists. And when I say promote, I simply want to sell their work because the politics of the art are such that the famous artists can't produce quickly enough, but they're one out of 200 maybe. So what happens to the other 199 in a remote community producing art for them is A, about culture, about community, about learning, but it's also about an income. So if they don't sell art, they don't get money. And some of them are some of them are good artists, but they're just not good artists, you know, with a with a capital G. So I like to sell their work. And in doing that I feel as if I'm making a personal contribution to reconciliation. In three years of listening to people talk about their connection to the world of Aboriginal art, I can't count the number of times this theme of art as reconciliation has come up. It even pervades the art supplies business. I'm Mark Chapman from Chapman and Bailey. We're art material suppliers, framers, stretcher makers, providers of services for visual arts industry, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. We have branches in Alice Springs, Melbourne and Brisbane. I'm just wondering, with all of your involvement through your art supply business, have you become attached in some way to Indigenous art or Indigenous artists? Oh, deeply, deeply. I mean, I collect quite passionately Indigenous art. I think it's one of the most exciting, interesting art movements in the history of art. You have a very rigorous surviving culture that's very rich in imagery and storytelling that's remained constant for, we don't know, 40, 50, 60,000 years. You know, a huge span of time. And it has a direct relationship to our culture My personal um, observation is that a lot of people who engage with Indigenous art, whether they're buying it or they're just going to visit an exhibition or whatever, um, it does open up a dialogue between themselves and the Indigenous culture and the history to it or the the symbology to it or just the way in which they look at at the world and transfer it into painted objects or paintings or artworks by seeing that difference or that beauty or the way in which they've gone about making this image or object it starts a dialogue that starts to question or open up questions where, where you do start to create relationships between yourself and Indigenous culture and um, that's a great thing, you know, that's one of the great things about it. Mark Chapman has affected the art at a very hands-on level. 
Through varying the type of canvas artists can use, Belgian linen is best, or even something as basic as priming it differently. So we find by hand priming the canvases with acrylic paint and using no separating medium, having the primer go straight in, you get an incredibly good bond with the linen itself. Plus you get an, a, a level of absorbency with the actual painting colours that then go on to the primer, with whether they be by brush or by dot or whatever, that you get a bond that both adheres very well but offers variation in surface. Some of it sits higher off the primer, some of it soaks into the primer, so you, it helps with the shimmer of the actual colours. You might have wondered about the practical aspects of how desert artists paint those massive collaborative canvases. They're sitting on the ground, so how do they get to the bit in the middle without ruining the bits on the outside? Well, a lot of it comes down to having the right kind of paint, one that dries quickly, for instance. Oil paints can become brittle when exposed to strong sunlight. Other types aren't very transportable but acrylics suit the conditions in a remote community. Acrylic paints, again, are perfect because not only can you saturate them readily with very vibrant colour, but also um, they dry quickly. Um, so if you've got people moving around, you know, dogs coming through, the painting needs to be rolled, that's also, you know, been a very valuable thing to have. Like any movement, Aboriginal art is constantly evolving. And sometimes that involves transcultural conversations between artists, such as happened in the emergence of Raft Gallery. Another such artistic interaction has been going on for almost a decade between the Yolnu artist Brewa Munninger and the Sydney conceptual artist Ruark Lewis. Rourke first saw Brewa's work in a show at the Annandale Gallery in Sydney in 2009 called Young Guns. He'd studied the archive of Bach paintings from scientific and anthropological expeditions to Arnhem Land in the 30s and 40s and was captivated by their evocation in Brewa's stripped-back style. It had a classicism to it, which the other painters... Remarkable paintings and flasher paintings and that highly baroque things and, and Brayer was was sort of the odd man out. But I, I knew that from the coloration of the painting and the, the simplicity, if you like, the reductiveness of it rather than simplicity. And uh, I just had to have that painting. It took me back to 1940s and 1930s. It, it wasn't about this contemporary art that the other painters seemed to have masterminded. He, he was painting slower and larger gestures and something that formally I could relate to again. The grid was, was circular, um, waveforms running down the painting and across the painting. The exhibition in Darwin in 2015 was multimedia. There were huge, almost 3D paintings by Brewa in traditional cross-hatching that depict the whale stories of his mother's country. Rourke's paintings respond to them in stark black-and-white geometric forms. Then there was a video installation by the Maori filmmaker Fiora Tukaki, who's also Breo's wife, 
which shows waterscapes and skyscapes from their homeland, Mud Blue Bay, or Yainya, 250 k's south of Iracala. There's a bark hut, a shelter on stilts based on one Breo's family have there. And there are cards like the flashcards teachers use with young children that spell out Yolnu names. That last touch came from Breo's mother. Under Yolnu law, Breo got permission from his mother to tell the whale stories of which she was custodian. I've never been involved with people that, you know, the mum's got to be there when you meet the art, other artist. And, um, but it was a wonderful way of looking at things. She was quite stern and shy, and I couldn't quite work out which it was. We were all thinking and discussing things carefully and not, not overcomplicating things. It wasn't simple, but it wasn't overcomplicating things. Just getting to know each other, immersing, you know, mapping out where, where or what we might do. We invited Brewer to be part of the conversation, but it didn't happen due to his other obligations. But Ruark believes the experience has been rewarding for both himself and Braille. In, you know, what I like about it a lot is, is the independence. Mine is probably more, more based on invention and instinct, and his is more based on uh, knowledge and sureness of that knowledge and, of course, instinct as well. Because I mean, that, that's the plastic side of the creation of the artwork. To create the artwork, Ruark spent many weeks camping out with Breo's extended family in a complete immersion into Yolnu traditional ways, hearing the manike, or songs, that document knowledge of country. It felt like a rare privilege. When we've been up there, they'll bring a bed and put it on the sand, and I'll sleep on this bed. I thought that was very funny. And pillows and sheets, the whole thing. It's wonderful to be with a family that um, probably hundreds of generations have been going to that place. You know, with his designs, you know, in the conversations I realised all these things affect water. So effect is the real, really interesting part of the paintings which are not directly represented. And, and in the songs, the issue of the detail of the character of the water is analysed in detail by those poets. Uh, that's the meditation. I find that quite remarkable. And um, the way the whale lists from one side to the other, the way it moves up and down, and tail flicking this way, it's arching its back. And there's very slow observation of the, the whale passing in the seascape. All of these conditions are very important what's happening in the sky. And if you know what's happening by the elements above you, um, you can more or less, you know, then start to um, decipher the land, that seascape or the landscape in these ways. So these are the telling coordinators for analysing for young or person who've been there since children from their very infancy on that, on that seascape and you know, fishing and hunting. So all of, the, all of these telltale things are really important in survival. So I've played with the sky and the stars, the aerial 
space. Perhaps that's because it's so changeable. Its uh, mythology isn't, isn't really fixed in the same way that the sea is or the land is. So I, I sort of feel comfortable in the air. Whereas um, the Brewer paintings or designs, you know, they're real, real records of place and knowing uh, the water courses and channels and all of that sort of fits embedded into his paintings. Working with the Maori filmmaker Fiora Tukaki brought an added cultural dimension. Rourke was struck by the Yolnu's generous acceptance of other approaches. Oh yeah, I think Yolnu are brilliant collectivists. And I guess that's why, you know, some estranger can come and arrive and if they express a willing application to, to inquiry, that, that they'll be included into the ongoing unpacking of the story as well. So how many paintings are in this collection that we're looking at? In another collectivist project, back at Yurikala, Yudaki expert and general factotum Jeremy Cloak showed us a beautiful collection of paintings about to be sent off to the National Museum in Canberra. And all done by Mulkan. Mulkan. They're by the Yolnu elder Mulkan Urupanda. From Mulkan's own words, is she gets upset when, you know, she's with her old people and they've died early, premature, because they've grown up on sugar and white flour, you know, processed, highly processed foods. Her generation grew up eating the foods that you're looking at in here. Her work you know, takes so us back to Jeremy's yam namesake, Gungari and to harnessing its underlying power. I think socially it's a very important issue and culturally it's very important. It's ethno-botanical knowledge, so I think that it's relevant in that context. But in the sense of artworks, yeah, they're beautiful. I mean, that one there, the Bunjungo painting with... These paintings, identifying the yams and other native plant food sources, led to a collaboration with the English-born artist John Wolseley. He was adopted by her, so... He's got a closeness. They've got great banter between them. You know, they get on really well. He painted botanical drawings of the plants to complement Mulkan's representations. The resulting collection, Midawar, or Harvest, was shown to acclaim at the National Museum of Australia in 2018 and is now off touring the country. The NMA recognised and that all of us recognised together and worked on together is this, as this is hugely important. You know, for many reasons, for for the health of people, for the ethnobotanical um, knowledge, the use of those plants, um, and for another context in which the Yungo can um, paint and share their culture, because it's beautiful artwork, as well as all of that. But you know, in this case, I think the artwork is secondary to the real meaning of it. It's well, pretty it's much visual, that case it's anyway. A visual text on. That's right. My colleague Margot O'Neill, who curated the wonderful Songlines exhibition that was showing at the National Museum at the same time, often makes two points about it. Actually, I think it's a genesis of it that gives it its power, and that is that Aboriginal elders came to the um, museum and ANU and others, and the statement I always say is that basically saying the Songlines are all broken up and we want you mob to help us put them back together again. There's a really interesting message coming through that this exhibition is for all Australians. What's, why is it so important for all Australians to see songlines? Well, I, you know, I think this is, again, why it has been 
so amazingly well successful in terms of being transformative is because we together, the curators, the curatorium, are basically saying, or the communities particularly, are basically saying, if we're going to share this continent called Australia now, and you want to be Australian, then you've got to know your story, and your story extends more than 220 years. You've got to know back millennia. So we're here to teach you your story. And when you know your story, you can feel like you belong to this country too. You can feel rooted and not remain a semi-grafted, um, dislocated person in a continent you know not, nothing about. Australians, you know, I went to school in Australia, did history in Australia. I knew nothing about Indigenous culture at all from history. But when I started to look at the artwork, you know, all this storytelling and design and richness of um, a culture started to open up to me. And I think for a lot of Australians, there's been a much rich, richer awareness developed through exposure to the artwork and to the music that they make. This song is about a fire. To what great sports people they can become with opportunity. This exposure makes people realise that um, we need a diverse, strong, rich culture and we need a heritage and and the heritage is, is both the land and, and the people who lived here first and for a long time have, you know, such a rich relationship with the land and understanding of the landscape that we live in that, um, you know, we need to engage in that understanding. Good morning. <laughs> We're good. We've just been out watching them get a bark painting. Bark, yeah, yes. yeah, we'll no, get morning. bark for the painting. Hi, My name this is, is Carl. Carl. Hi, Carl. He, Carl Yudaki enthusiast. Yes, yes. And this is the Mecca. I first noticed Carl in the gallery at the Buku Larangay Art Centre inspecting the Yudaki, the Yolnu word for didgeridoo. He told me he was a retired school teacher from Frankfurt who'd come across the Yudaki on a visit to Australia about 20 years ago. And when I heard this uh, drone and this uh, sound of the didgeridoo, I said, oh, it's one of my promises when I retire to start uh, playing the Yudaki myself. Since then, Carl had done a masterclass in Europe with Jeremy Cloak and had returned to Yurikala several times. So I asked him to play no for me. Yeah, thank yes, you. <laughs> the traditional way. Yes. The basic uh, training takes you about half a year uh, to practice the, the circular breathing. It's not a myth. It's not a mystery. It's just a, practice, uh, a matter of practicing, you see. So it's not hard to learn. Well, the indigenous people have learned it for thousands of years. Why shouldn't I try to? But they are much better in playing. You see, it teaches me modesty and honesty. And I, as a Westerner, of course, I will never be able to play as good as uh, uh, the indigenous people here. So it teaches you a lot about different cultures and mutual understanding and respect. And I am deeply impressed by the Yolonga culture, the way they uh, live in harmony with the nature, which is so model-shaping. We could learn so much from these people how to get along with nature and not exploit it, not to kill it. 
they never produce any kind of climate change, never exploiting the nature. So that's something we can really learn. And as a former teacher, I'm here as a student uh, for understanding and uh, mutual respect. to Carl, a colleague, Quentin, and I were about to watch how the Yolnu blowtorch the fresh barks to prepare them for the artists. It got Carl thinking again about how deeply Yolnu culture affected him. Because it's not just a matter of uh, technical uh, processes, tongue position or stomach movement. It's a matter of atmosphere and taking it easy. And this is still the secret for me, to take it very easy. You have to be totally relaxed Mm. to enjoy the feeling of uh, happiness and you just forget about space and time. That is the secret for me because I always try to breathe at the right spot, at the right moment in order to not to lose control, you see. So for me, as a Westerner, it is mostly a matter of uh, losing control, whereas I'm still trying to keep my control. That's the contradiction, you see. Losing control, forget about everything. Do what you want at that moment, spontaneously. As a German, I'm sometimes, I know I'm very disciplined. As a German, I grew up in a disciplined way. Now, I have to learn to lose discipline, you see. (laughs) It's the very opposite. (laughs) It was a point I'd heard many times over this series, that engaging with Australia's indigenous culture can be life-changing. Mark Chapman has seen it happen to wealthy collectors. I think people who have often lived very much in the stereotypical industrial technological lifestyle, having been exposed to Indigenous art, seeing its beauty, become involved in it, yeah, it opens up possibilities for diverse ways of living and diverse systems of organising societies and all sorts of things open up from a little seed that's planted through looking at a, at a painting and having an engagement with a painting or a sculpture. Or... So these are people who've built their success on materialism and, and yet they're kind of led towards a non-materialistic view of the world. That a non-materialistic view of the world can be rich and meaningful and that can be a challenge to the system in which they've devoted years of their life and much of their energy but there is a viability in other in other systems that was more from the matrix episode 5 in our series heart of artness about the cross-cultural interactions that swirl around the Aboriginal art world. Thanks to Judy Muller, Rourke Lewis and Mark Chapman, and to Dallas Gold and Jeremy Cloak. This series is devised and produced by me, Siobhan McHugh, with the support of Margot Neal, Senior Indigenous Curator at the National Museum of Australia, and Ian McLean, Hugh Ramsey Chair of Contemporary Art at the University of Melbourne. Audio production is by Guy Freer. The series is a University of Wollongong research project funded by the Australian Research Council. 
you can hear other episodes on our website. Just search for Heart of Artness.